Good morning, my name is Lisa. I have the privilege of serving on the Serving the Servants team, and my husband and I lead a community group. Today's scripture passage is from Proverbs 6, verses 1 through 19. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you have shaken hands in pledge for a stranger, you have been trapped by what you said, ensnared by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, to free yourself, since you have fallen into your neighbor's hands. Go to the point of exhaustion and give your neighbor no rest. Allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of a hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When, you get up, when will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. A troublemaker and a villain who goes about with a corrupt mouth, who winks maliciously with his eyes, signals with his feet, and motions with his fingers, who plots evil with deceit in his heart, he always stirs up conflict. Therefore, disaster will overtake him in an instant. He will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. There are six things the Lord hates, even that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. This is God's word. Thank you, Lisa. I have been waiting for the day I can say the word sluggard repeatedly from <laughs> the pulpit, but it is in the midst of all these huge cultural issues and topics that Proverbs in chapter 6 zooms in on an area that we must not take for granted, and that is the area of character. And that is our focus from this text today. So let's pray together and let's ask the Spirit of God to speak to us, remind us why character in such a time as this absolutely matters to God and how it is that He wants to change us. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are aware of every aspect of our lives. There is nothing that gets past you. And for that reason, we know that you care deeply about our character. The way in which we live, the way in which we conduct ourselves in such a time as this, with one another in this church, with our friends and family, and with those that we work with, those that we live around, those that we engage with on a broader level. You care about our character. And so today, as we open your word, would you open our hearts that you would convict us of character issues that you want to deal with, but also encourage us 
Remind us the power of the Holy Spirit that you give to change us from the inside out so that we would reflect Jesus to this lost and dying world. So to that end, we pray that you would teach us now. And for those who do not yet know you this morning, that they would understand the good news of Jesus and be saved. It's in his name we pray these things. And everyone said, amen. Well, it was written over a hundred years ago, but the book is considered a classic. The picture of Dorian Gray, written by Oscar Wilde, some of you may remember reading it in high school. It is the story of a young man whose desire to stay young and handsome leads him to make a wish, a wish that he can remain young and handsome. And to his surprise, the wish is granted. But there is a catch. He will not age, but there will be a large painting in his house of himself that will change. The painting will change according to his actions. And so the story goes, he would go out, he would make decisions, and he would come back to his house to find that the painting had changed. And for him, it served as a warning, a warning about who he was becoming and where he was headed. And so to his shock over time, his worship of pleasure, hatred for other people, and bad moral choices caused the portrait to become more corrupt and more horrifying. It looks like a monster. I've given you the black and white toned down version. Handsome man, ugly portrait. It reflects his character. I suppose there are two points we're meant to take. One is that the monster was not created overnight. It happened through daily choices. And two, he ignored the warnings of the portrait. So here's an uncomfortable question for us all. If we had a portrait in our living rooms that reflected our character and the nature of our daily choices, what would it look like? And what would it reveal? We have before us in Proverbs chapter 6, three portraits. Three portraits of bad character. We're told about three different types of, of person with three different character issues. Three different areas of fault. And they are meant to teach us what we should avoid if we're going to pursue and cultivate good character. If we listen to the warnings of these portraits, we can mature, we can grow strong so that, unlike the picture of Dorian Gray, we can look to the portrait that reveals the destiny of anyone who puts their faith in the gospel. That is a portrait of Jesus Christ. That is who we are to become more like. And it is in his glory that we are headed. That's good news. Here's my concern, my pastoral concern. I've known many people, in particular over the last few years, sadly, 
who stood for all the right positions and even held to the right doctrine, but their character absolutely fell apart. I'm thinking of several pastors, if I'm honest right now, who I know who were excellent preachers. They handled the word of truth publicly, rightly. They engaged in all the positions rightly. And yet the ones I'm thinking of completely destroyed their marriages by having extramarital affairs. In the midst of the culture wars, they were not attending to their character. They were not attending to the ordinary daily choices that might not make the headlines to the public, but they always make the headlines to God. It's been said that character is what you are in the dark. That statement has never left me. Very convicting. And what strikes me is it's often the small daily choices. After all, so many of the wins and losses, if I can put it in that way, of our lives are made in the seemingly normal moments of everyday life. That's my concern. And Proverbs chapter 6 does not let us underestimate them. And so these lessons in this chapter arise in the context of ordinary situations in life. Ordinary, but important. The three areas are the area of our commitments, the area of our ambitions, and the area of our relationships. And you will notice quickly that it is full of warnings. And though for many of us, we may not like warnings, they may not feel good on a Sunday morning, hear this. Warnings are not a contradiction of God's love. They are an expression of God's love. God only warns you because he loves you. If he didn't care about you, he wouldn't warn you. He'd say, go ahead, touch the hot stove, see if I care. But that's not our God. He says, look, I care about all the things concerning you, and so I'm going to give you a warning, even in the most practical areas. And so, as we'll find in this text, there's more than just practical instruction. This passage reveals the heart of God, what he desires for your life, what he desires for my life, that he cares about the everyday. So, for you and I to cultivate godly character in a time in which the world is watching how the church behaves, you realize that, right? With every new issue you read about on social media, everyone's watching, how do these people live? How do Christians behave? So to cultivate godly character, you need to know this. First of all, your commitments matter to God. Your daily, mundane, ordinary commitments, they absolutely matter to God. And in this case, and in this context, you must think carefully about what agreements you are getting into and who you are getting into agreements with. In this case, it's financial. Verses one through three. Proverbs says, my son, if you have put up security, or older translations say surety, love that word, for your neighbor, if you have shaken hands in pledge for a stranger, verse two, you have been trapped by what you said ensnared by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, to free yourself since you have fallen into your neighbor's hands. Go to the point of exhaustion and give your neighbor no rest. What's he talking about here? 
Well, in verses 1 through 3, King Solomon, the author and collector of these wise sayings, is talking about putting up security or being a guarantor for a neighbor or for a stranger. What he's describing here in these verses is basically meaning you're co-signing a loan for someone you don't know. You're co-signing. If someone just walks up to you today and say, hey, I found this great house in Ventura. I know you don't know me. It's only 9,500 a month. Some of you are like, yeah, sadly, that's normal in California. It's only 9,500 a month. I was wondering if you could be the co-signer on my loan. And you're like, sure, why not? It's a sunny day. I'm feeling generous. I'll sign on the dotted line. Solomon's like, don't do it. And if you do, do whatever you have to do to get out of it immediately. What he's warning against is a binding agreement with someone that you aren't responsible for. Putting up money for a business deal with someone that you don't even know. This is foolish. Why? Because you haven't given thought. You don't know the person that you're guaranteeing. You don't know whether or not they will be irresponsible in paying what they owe. Now the question arises, you're like, why would someone do this? <laughs> why would someone shake hands and say, yep, stranger, I'll be your guarantor? If you read the commentaries on this passage, many of them believe the reason a person would enter into this kind of agreement is that they might make money from it. Ooh, I don't know that, but maybe if there's some interest on that, sure, I don't know you, but it doesn't matter. Maybe I can benefit from this. But his warning comes in verse 3. This will lead you to become trapped, ensnared by a foolish commitment. And friends, that's the heart of a matter. Do not become ensnared in a foolish commitment. This is a warning about getting into a formal partnership where you can be brought down by someone else's risky behavior. And here's why it matters, because in that moment, you're essentially outsourcing your responsibility. You're, you're giving it away, and you can be brought down by someone else's behavior through a kind of gamble, which is basically an attempt to to get money without discipline. You may even be encouraging the stranger to be irresponsible, saying, don't worry, whatever choices you make, I've got you covered. Now this becomes all the more convicting when you expand this application to other areas of life. And most certainly, we do this. We say, hey, don't worry about it. You can go out and make bad decisions and I will cover for you. How often have we done this? But it can all go wrong. That's the urgency in verse three. Do whatever you need to do to get out of this. It means to pester the person. Text them, email them, call them. There's two illustrations here in verse four and five. Allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of a hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. God wants you, he wants me to take seriously what he has entrusted to our care and not act as a guarantor for someone who is making or who might make 
bad decisions. Oh, don't worry about it. I, I've got you covered. Even if you make bad choices, no problem. Gosh, we do this in other areas. It could even be moral and ethical. Maybe it could be a friend in the church. Like, hey, go out and sin. Don't, don't worry. I've got you covered. Proverbs warns us saying, don't do it. Be responsible for what is entrusted to you. He wants you and I to be careful about what God has placed into our trust. And this is true of more than just money. This raises the issue of stewardship. I know stewardship is not a word that we use in the common vernacular, but it is a huge, important biblical theme. It means each one of us has been given specific responsibilities. If you're married, you have your spouse. If you have children, it's your children, your home, your, your work, your, your money, your possessions, whatever it might be, your gifts, your opportunities that you have. We've all been given these things. And thus, we are to be faithful with them. So stewardship understands that God owns everything. I am entrusted with some things. I am accountable for those things. And therefore, I must be faithful with these things. A steward doesn't recklessly gamble with what they have. So let's be clear, even when it comes to money and possessions, the Bible tells us over and over again to be generous. We're called to give money and resources away. But we're not to give away our responsibility. We're not to allow ourselves to become controlled by the foolish actions of another person. To put myself in a situation where their foolish decisions is going to control my life. I was reflecting on this when I was thinking of my younger years when I made many stupid decisions. I'd say the ratio was like 95% stupid decision, 3% wise, 2% gray area, you know, in my younger years. And I would often get in a car with someone who was drinking too much alcohol or they're on like some kind of substances and they're like, Tim, I'm driving. Do you want to get in the car? And there's that little moment of like, you probably shouldn't do this, but hey, live fast, love hard, die young, you know? That's how it was in NorCal, anyone? No? <laughs> Wasn't how you were raised, whatever. We can talk after. I would get in the car. What a stupid decision. What am I doing in that moment? Even if I wasn't intoxicated, I put myself in a situation where the person who was was now in control of my life. Proverbs all over the place says, don't do it. Don't put yourself into a commitment or a position where your life will be controlled by the foolish decisions of others. Do whatever you got to do. In that scenario, had I been a believer at that time, I would have said, I should have said, pull over the car right now. I'm getting out. But Tim, we're in the middle of nowhere. Doesn't matter. Let me out. Do whatever you've got to do to get out of that situation. Do not give away your responsibility. Does God want us to be generous? Yes. Does God want us to be kind? Yes. But we're not meant to give away what we are to be responsible for. I think of my family. I think of my children. I need to be responsible. My commitments matter to God. This morning, you and I are to reflect what kind of commitments am I making on a daily basis? Are there some commitments that I've agreed to 
that would put me in a, a risky scenario. I need to ask God for wisdom today. You and I need to ask God, like, hey, I can't outsource my responsibility. Ask God for wisdom. And if you're in one of those commitments, do whatever you got to do to get out of it. Revoid, avoid those responsibilities that are not yours so that you can be free to focus on the responsibilities that are yours. Your commitments are a matter of character. And as a result, they matter to God. Which then leads to the second area. It's so practical. Number one, your commitments matter to God. But number two, your ambitions matter to God. Your ambitions matter to God. So he begins this chapter, Solomon, by telling his son, hey, watch out in regards to the commitments you made. But then he turns a corner. He says, I want you to put your energy into good commitments. So yes, avoid foolish commitments. But that doesn't mean sitting on the sofa and never doing anything at all whatsoever. Oh no, he's got a lot to say about that. Just wait till he gets to the ant. I almost called this sermon Lessons from the Ant, but I didn't have the courage. God wants you to have holy ambition. Holy ambition. That is to put your energy and your effort into good endeavors, whatever they might be. And so as a result, we have another portrait with another warning. This time, it's a warning against those who are lazy. Make no mistake, this is a character issue. So much so that he even gives the lazy person a title. Some of you got it on your coffee cup that you were given at the beginning of this series. In verse 6 through 11, he says, go to the ant you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler. Yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest? And poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. Now, what is a sluggard? I was surprised to find in the Hebrew language, it literally means something that drips very, very slowly. If you're a parent, you've probably seen the film Zootopia, in which one of the main characters is a bunny, who is a police officer, who goes to the DMV, which is all run by sloths. <laughs> and if you haven't seen the movie, you've probably seen the YouTube clip where they talk so slow that it literally gives me great anxiety. When I was watching with my kids, I was like, ah, I can't even handle it. Something that drips slowly. You know when you buy like a jar of raw honey and you let it sit out and it crystallizes? And you're like, I need honey for my tea or my coffee. And like no matter, you're like, you left it out. You microwaved it. You left it out on the counter for like three hours. I'm giving it like an elbow and it still won't come out. 
That's exactly what's meant to come to your mind when you think of this person, a jar of molasses. This man or woman is the person who's in danger of wasting all of their opportunities day after day until it results in wasted years. It's a warning against laziness. Now, before we apply it more, let me clarify something. Many of us, I gather from my conversations with you, are quite busy, very busy lives. So let me offer a word of clarification. It might be a little hard to hear, but I think it's important and I need to hear it too. It is possible to be busy and lazy at the same time. It is possible to be busy and lazy at the same time. Here's what I mean. It is possible to fill your calendars with lesser things as an excuse to ignore more important things. I've known many mothers and fathers who willingly take an inordinate amount of hours more at work as a way of avoiding the responsibilities of the home. I've had friends who said, yeah, I'm working 70 hours a week. Well, why? Well, I just need to, you know, I just want to earn a little bit extra money. No, but you're good. Yeah, well, just home life, I don't know. I just, I find much more peace in just like putting in those extra 10 hours. I'm like, but your family. It's so easy to fill our calendars with lesser things as a way of avoiding the more important things. Let's call it selective laziness. You could have a hobby. And on Saturday, you're out there just like focusing on your hobby. You're selling things on Etsy. You're like building eight cars or what I don't know, whatever it is that you do. As a way of avoiding more important things. So don't check out right now because you think that this does not apply to you. There is a temptation toward being lazy within us all. So let's ask ourselves a couple of healthy questions. Could our lives be marked by endless little compromises? See, that's the sluggard in verse 9. The sluggard is the one who refuses to make up their mind. Notice the question that hangs there in the air. How long will you lie there, sluggard? Hands up emoji. <laughs> How long will you lie there? But the sluggard has no answer. Just endless compromises, unanswered questions. You keep putting off what you know you should prioritize. How often have there been times where we're like, man, we know we need to pray, but oh, I just gotta do all these other things. I know we should go pray with our friends or go to that community group or join that prayer meeting or do our devotion, but oh, there's just so much more in the day. How long? How long will you put off these priorities? I've known couples who are like, do you pray together? Well, no, I know we should. It's been a few years. Oh, well, you could start now. I know, but there's just so much going on. Like, how long? Are we marked by endless compromises? A second convicting question, do we aim to finish the things that we do engage in 
well? Are we aiming to finish well? See, notice the slugger does find a little motivation on rare occasions, but once they get going, it's too much and the impulse dies. Look at Proverbs 26, verse 15. A sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but he's too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. What a picture. I love Proverbs. <laughs> Just there, he's like, I'm going to do this. Going to, nah. <laughs> what a picture. This shows that a sluggard, the lazy person, can start something but not finish it. Do they stick with it? Do you stick with it? Do you see it through well? Are you working to finish well? I think about this in the church. We serve in different areas of the church, and it's great, you know, in a moment of inspiration or a passive-aggressive announcement from the pulpit on a Sunday, and you're like, fine, I'll serve the children. Jesus loves the children and all. And you serve for two weeks, and you're like, yeah, I did my duty. I'm out. You're like, really? Two weeks is what you had for the kids? <laughs> Do we aim to finish well? Another question, will we face up to the challenges that lie before us or will we make excuses? Another one of my favorite Proverbs, Proverbs 22, verse 13. The lazy person claims, there's a lion out there. If I go outside, I might be killed. In short, this is the person who is committed to the easiest choice possible, but it will lead to the worst outcome imaginable. And it only harms, it does not help. What's interesting is when you look at what the Bible says about laziness, ultimately laziness is a failure to love. It's a failure to love. Rather than help, you want to be carried. Could that define me? Could that define you? And like the previous section, these principles apply to areas beyond our life of employment. So, what about us? Do we make the easy decisions with people? Is it always just the, the easiest path? Maybe you've come across a friend recently who's caught up in some very sinful and terrible choices, but it's way too hard to lovingly confront them, so you don't. But that's not loving, is it? Don't get me wrong, I don't like having those types of conversations. Don't think because I'm a vocational pastor, I'm like, ooh, we got an email about a sinner, have we? Well, I've got time at 5 a.m. tomorrow, first thing. Can't wait. I don't like it. I don't like get excited about that. Yay, get to confront someone. Some of you do. It's weird. In your community group, like, wait, someone needs to be confronted? Give them to me. It's like, hey, settle down, man. <laughs> I don't like it, but it would be lazy not to do it. It would be unloving not to do it. And I'm thankful when people have taken the time to do it to me. Do you always make the easy decisions when it comes to practical service? See, God cares about ambition. God wants us to be a people who are engaged in our, the responsibilities in front of us, that we do the work of sharing the truth, investing in other people's lives, pursuing honorable work, seeking to prefer others. You and I, we were not made for spiritual procrastination. We were made for active participation in kingdom work. You were meant to have 
holy ambition. So what is it that you know you should do, but you're just putting it off? And the Holy Spirit this morning is like, hey, now is the time. Put your hand to the plow. Engage. Serve. And to inspire us, God, through Proverbs, says, you want inspiration? Look at the ant. Which I personally find very humbling. I'm like, really? I want the tiger. Wouldn't it have been like amazing if God's like, you want inspiration? Look at the tiger. And I'm like, yeah. I've always fancied myself a tiger. <laughs> but he's like, look to the ant. And I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah. Have you ever watched National Geographic? The ant. What do we learn? Three quick lessons from the ant. Things you never thought you'd hear on a Sunday. What do I learn from the ant? These things. Don't wait for somebody else to start first. Verse 7. The ant has no commander. The ant's not waiting for a boss to push it along. The ant's not reporting to anyone. What's the lesson? Go for it. When it comes to like service and prayer and like evangelism, don't just, well, maybe when other people start, just do it. Just go for it. Call up the motivation in your, your heart to get to work and use your life for gospel service. The second lesson from the ant is start with the aim of finishing. Verse 8, we're told the ant is gathering things up in the hot sun and won't stop until the job is done. As we all know, this summer, the ant will not stop until all of the food has been taken from your picnic. It's true. The ant does not see themselves above hard work and neither should we. Make the right commitment, be wise about it, and stick with it. And the third lesson is build for the future. The ant gathers their food for the harvest. Now you and I, we can't control the future, but we can build for the future. The ant has an effort and the right goal. This means, practically, that you and I should make a plan for our growth. So personally, like this year, how are you going to grow? Right? We, we would all say, I think everyone here, who wants to grow? Right? Everyone raise your hand. Yes, of course. We all want to grow. If you say you don't want to grow, that's a problem. But the next question is, well, how are you going to grow? I want to grow in my marriage. But the question is how? What's the plan? My wife and I went away for the, we've never been to like a marriage retreat that we weren't like involved in like putting on. So this year after my, well, I want to say it's my, it's my wife's idea. She's like, honey, we need to do this as it often is. I'm like, okay. So we go away to this marriage retreat, something that I am absolutely in no way involved in, which was actually, to be honest, gloriously awesome and wonderful. And my wife and I are sitting there. And within like five minutes of being at this marriage conference, I'm like holding back tears because I'm realizing how good this is. How good it is for my wife and I to hear things. Okay, tools, I need to be equipped. Like, yes, we need to work on this. They even had like this app where you had to like survey each other. And then it would give the results, you know, to your spouse, you know, and then you had to go and then talk about it. I was like, oh, talk about Conviction City. I mean, my wife is like holy and awesome, but I'm the one with the problem. I was like, this is good. We're coming up with a plan. So what's the plan? How are we planning for our growth? What are the things we're going to pray into this summer? What are the things we're going to read about? How are we going to engage with other people in the church? Wise people have a goal in mind and they build for it. We leverage what we have 
in the present for the future. And this is especially true about the gospel. One of my, my favorite verses, because it's so shocking and surprising in, in the gospels, is this Luke chapter 16, verse 9. Jesus uses a parable and then says, here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then, when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. What a great verse on evangelistic hospitality. Leave that up there just for a minute. You got a nice backyard? Invite your neighbors over. You got a nice barbecue? I know some of you do. Use it. Like, invite the people over. Share the gospel with them. Like, yeah, the barbecue's awesome, but it's gonna, it's gonna disappear one day. Some of you need to wrestle with that now. <laughs> but use it for eternal purposes. Use what you have to make friends, to build bridges so that you could share the gospel with them. So when all these things, your home, your sprinter vans, everything else disappears, that when you get into glory, they're like, hey, you invited me to the barbecue and I came to church and I got saved. You're like, yes. Luke chapter 16, verse nine, put that on your fridge or your coffee mug. Sorry, we didn't make one for you. Use what you have in the present and build for the future. We are not allowed to treat each moment as if it doesn't matter. The sluggard back in verse 10 says, just a little, just a little, just a little, until a little turns into a lot. May God free us from excuses. We need to be honest and ask, what am I letting slip away because of excuses? In fact, we've been given so much. We're to use it. We're to have holy ambition. And as we do, we do it with other people. And so we must be careful. And that's the third point about our character. Your relationships matter to God. Now there's a lot here, but there's mainly one theme that the commentators tell us. It's a massive warning against dividing and destroying other people. And so in verses 12 through 19, here he describes outward signs of inward evil. It's a character issue. Verse 12 to 15, a troublemaker and a villain who goes about with a corrupt mouth, who winks maliciously with his eye, signals with his feet, and motions with his fingers, who plots evil with deceit in his heart. He always stirs up conflict. Therefore, disaster will overtake him in an instant. He will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. God loves people. And therefore, he cares about the way that we treat people. That's why there's so many verses in the Bible about harmony and unity. Not at the expense of truth, but unity and harmony because of the truth. God loves it when we build each other up. And that's why the warnings are here and they're so sobering. He shows us ways in which we can destroy community by promoting discord, which is harmful communication or not representing the other side fairly, or creating hostile situations without attempting to resolve them. Does any of this describe me? Does any of this describe you? And so he ends with another warning in verse 16, 19. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. 
haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. It may seem unusual to you that a passage ends with a statement about what God hates. You're like, oh, happy Sunday. But this language actually reveals what he loves. God warns against these things because of what he loves. Look how strongly he feels about it. There's a numbered list, which is a Hebrew way of saying this is really important. And the seventh number in this Hebrew structure is usually the main emphasis, and that is discord. And notice in the middle of all of it, this list shows the source of everything, and that's why in the middle, it mentions the heart. From the heart, a heart, verse 18, that devises wicked schemes. Because it is in the heart that these things come from, and it is the heart that must change. Unity, harmony, love, service, justice shows that the gospel has become real to our hearts. Being wise about our commitments shows that the gospel has become real to our hearts. Having holy ambition shows that the gospel has become real to our hearts. Loving people, promoting unity, guarding against discord in our conversations and our dealings with other people shows that the gospel is becoming real to our hearts. But many of us have failed. I know I have. And so here's the good news. Each of these themes of debt, disregard, and discord, these are the very things that Jesus Christ came to save me from. These are the very things that Jesus Christ came to save you from. In the gospel, God does for us what we could not afford to do for others. He takes our debt. He's the only one. He becomes our guarantor. And in the book of Job, that same word surety or security is actually used by this man who is suffering when he says something remarkable to God in Job chapter 17 verse 3. He cries out to God and says, be my guarantee, be my surety, O God, for who else will pledge himself for me? In other words, you know what he's saying? God, I'm a bad risk. I'm a sinner. I need you to do for me what I would never do for someone like me. I need you to cover all my debts, past, present, and future. Because God is the only one who could without falling into the trap himself. He's the only one. And the miraculous thing is that's exactly what Jesus Christ did on the cross 2,000 years ago when Jesus stood in our place and died on that cross and took the penalty for all of our sin. He shouted, paid in full. And so what he does as we confess our sin is he tears up the ledger. He becomes our surety and he pays our debt. Jesus gave up all of his wealth, but not to enrich himself, but to enrich us. And in doing so, he refused the easy path of a fool and demonstrated the greatest ambition of all to seek and to save the lost. And because he unites 
you to him, he unites you to other people in loving, harmonious community and becoming a man or woman who cares about the things that are entrusted to them, seizing every opportunity before you with holy ambition, promoting harmony. These are all examples of what Jesus saved you for. Jesus is the opposite of the sluggard. He worked on our behalf. He came not in pride, but in humility with truth on his lips and love in his heart. He did not shed innocent blood, but on that day, innocent blood was shed for us. His heart did not devise wicked schemes, but wonderful plans for you and I. The true witness who pours out truth and creates a family of broken people. So today, as God addresses our character, know this. He pays your debt. He puts desires in your heart. And he binds people together. Where does that need to happen in your life today? Let's pray right now that in these moments, the Holy Spirit would cause these truths to bear on our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ became our surety. We ask in light of that, knowing that we are forgiven, knowing that we are accepted, knowing that we are used for your kingdom purposes all by grace, that we would be free to confess our blind spots, that we would be free to confess any areas of character that you want to deal with that you want to change, that you want to transform. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do your work now. Holy Spirit, you are the convincer. You are the one who convinces us of things that need attention, sins that need repentance, areas that need encouragement. I pray today we would not play the fool and just be thinking about other people that need to deal with their issues, but that we would pay attention to what you are saying to us. God, may this time be a time of transformation. Make us like Jesus. I pray for anyone here who does not yet know you, who recognizes, I have played the fool. I have played the sluggard. I can't pay my debts. I pray right now in this moment, they would realize that Jesus paid the debt for them. Your son who died on the cross and rose again, paid for them. And I pray that right now, they would put their faith and their trust in you so that they might be forgiven, so that they might be saved, so that they might be made new. I pray that they would commit their lives to you right now, even in this time of worship and prayer, and not wait another moment, and not put it off. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.